Oh, with all that applause, I can hardly wait to hear what I've got to say. <laughs> good morning, good evening, or whatever it is. I'm not sure. I've only been here three days. <laughs> Maybe I'll catch up somewhere down the line. Uh, my name is Cersei, and I'm an alcoholic. And, uh, by the grace of God and your help, and uh, Al-Anon, Al-Ateen, Al-Atot, al and in between, uh, I have not had a drink since May 10th, 1946. The only reason I mention the length of my sobriety is because I'm damn proud of it. That's the only reason I mention it. If we're not glad to have whatever we've got in sobriety, well, we don't deserve it. If we're not grateful for every minute and every hour of sobriety that we've been given by the grace of God, we don't deserve it. But I am my boat loaded with gratitude to all of you people who stayed the course and are here sober today. And thank God for you. You know, repetition confirms and strengthens habit and faith comes naturally. I've been talking ever since I got here. <laughs> and this is the first time I've had baptismal services in a Lutheran church. <laughs> but I'm a recovering Baptist, you know. <laughs> so I hope they don't kick me out of the church. I hope the hell all these guys have been carrying the message up to whoever gets to stand. I hope they bring me something to say. <laughs> Keep plugging in. <laughs> um... You know, uh, uh, we have fun staying sober. I do. If I didn't have fun staying sober, I'd start and go to drinking again, I guess. I don't know what I'd do. But I've had fun ever since I've been in the program. From the beginning of Alcoholics Anonymous, it had been a revelation of fun and fellowship and, and, uh, for being sober and being able to talk and help other people and to help ourselves. And uh, I was a bad drunk, and uh, I don't know of any good ones. <laughs> but and I I, uh, I hope I don't uh, get into a long drunkalogue. I don't plan to. And a lot of times, old timers, you know, we get into a drunkalogue and it lasts four or five days. <laughs> That's the reason we're not asked to talk too often. You know, talk to somebody that can cut it down. You know. And, uh, but there's no way I can cut my talk down because it's been, it's, uh, it's happened over such a long period of time. Uh, I'm, I have three important numbers in my life. They're 90, 65, and 54. I'm 90 years old, been married to the same woman for 65 years, and I've been... <laughs> And I've been sober 54 years. But I'll tell you one thing, the most important one of those numbers, and those are not my measurements, uh, the most important number of those is the 54. If I didn't have that, I wouldn't have the 90 and I wouldn't have the 65, I'll guarantee you that. And I, I, in this position, and uh, ordinarily, old Smitty, uh, Dr. Bob's son, and I travel a lot and go around spreading the disease over the country. Uh, and uh, I always talk after him because I let the Alanon talk first, usually, and then they ate. And uh, they turned it around here, so I'm going to have to watch what I say. He's going to follow me up, and I don't know what the hell he'll tell you about me. I have no idea. Uh, but let's remember this, that Bob is the only living human left in God's world that was there when we started. The only one left. Some of old moss, of us old moss heads have been around a little while after it started, and for different periods of time in there after it did start, but we weren't there in the beginning. 
and uh, my cup runneth over for Bob and Bill who stayed the course from the beginning. They stayed that this is good, this is of God, this is, is will help the alcoholic, and we got to stay with it, and they did. Thank God for them staying the course. They saved our lives. Uh, I'm not going to, uh, as I said, I won't do a long monologue, but I developed alcoholism. I was not born with alcoholism. I have no idea that I was born without because my father and mother and, and all my family never did drink. Not at all. They were Baptists and missionary Baptists. And they didn't drink like Methodists and Catholics and all those people. <laughs> <laughs> but but I was uh, was born in my father and mother. We had uh, seven children in my family, and we were poor, very poor, and uh, and we had a lot of hard times. But those hard times, just like in Alcoholics Anonymous, those hard days we have and the hard times we have tell us that if we stay the course, it'll work. If we stay the course, it'll stay in there and we'll stay sober and it'll work. And my father and mother, they stayed the course, although on that old farm we had very little income. And, and a lot of, lot of hazards, a lot of bad things, and we prayed to God that it would rain so we'd have a crop and something to eat from week to week. Uh, if you're not as close to God as you once were, make no mistake about who moved. And if you never were close to Him, make no mistake about who should move. Without the power greater than ourselves, we would not have alcoholics anonymous. And I'm not going to preach to you about religion because I don't know anything about it. Uh, and I am a recovering Baptist. I still don't know anything about it. But I can tell you that spirituality is the reflection of godliness in the channels of human living. It is what we aspire to be. It's what we would like to be. It's what we want to be. But we're not there. We don't seek perfection. We seek progress. And we've got it. I want to tell you a few things. That, well, anyhow, on my road to alcoholism... Uh, uh, as I said, I, I was not born an alcoholic, but, but I set out on the course to become one, and I did by doing these things that I did, and as a result, I became an alcoholic. Uh, I, uh, uh, I wanted, I didn't, I didn't like that farm at all. I hated the damn farm. I just hated it. I had to chop cotton and pick cotton and all, and, and I did a, a lot of surveying, too. I used a mule's tail for a compass, you know. <laughs> so I finally, finally got off that farm with an old aunt of mine who lived in a little city close to us, and uh, I could stay with her and have room and board and work in a drugstore and finish high school. And the day I finished high school, I went to uh, Midland, Texas, to play semi-pro baseball in the old West Texas League. And it was a pretty good league. We had big oil companies out there and big motor companies and big uh, corporations that sponsored players. And we had to play baseball on the weekend, but we had to work during the week, during something we were supposed to work. And uh, so... uh I don't know about you, but in my drink, I, I never did like to drink with a sorry drinker, did you? You drink with somebody, they'll take two or three drinks and pass out. Or they'll take two or three drinks and say, I don't like the taste of the stuff. You know, I like to drink with them, drink it down, puke it up, and drink some more. Just keep on. Yeah. <laughs> I'm amazed a lot of times at the waste of money that is about alcohol. My wife will once in a while order a grasshopper, whatever that is. Got salt all the way around the top, and she'll ship her, and then when you get through eating, it's still there. That's just a waste of money. You know. <laughs> well, they'll drink it down, and order up three or four more, you know, and get some more. Drink it. Anyhow, 
I, I set out on the course to, uh, uh, alcohol changed my life from being ugly, and look how I've improved. <laughs> but you know, alcohol will change your course of life, I'll tell you that. If you, I, 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 I drank alcohol and it made a new man out of me and then I wanted to give the new man a drink, you know. <laughs> I played baseball with a company, a big motor company. They hired me to play baseball and to work for them for a few days a week. <laughs> and uh, our baseball manager was a guy named Doc Ellis. And Doc had a funeral parlor. And he was our manager. And that's a hell of a combination, there, Funeral partner and a, and a baseball manager. But anyhow, that's what happened. We had a third baseman, and I have to tell this story about Red Hill. Was the third baseman. He was a sorry drinker. He drank two or three uh, beers and just passed out. Uh, ridiculous. And, and very, very disappointing to we who could handle it so well, you know. And so anyhow, we had, uh, I'm sure lost the, the game that Sunday night, but we were back at the funeral parlor and, uh, drinking beer. We drank homebrew. Now homebrew, I don't see very many homebrew faces here, but there's a few. And what, what homebrew was, it was a macaroni and cheese, spaghetti, and I don't know, but it fermented and it makes you drunk. I know that. They <laughs> called it homebrew. At the funeral parlor after this game, this Sunday, by Red Hill had a couple of beers and just passed out on the funeral floor. And uh, we decided, we who had so much knowledge and about able to drink, we decided we'd get even with him. It was very, very embarrassing. And we picked him up and put him in a casket. <laughs> and we folded his arms and put some roses around on him here and there. And we stood back to see what his reaction would be. And finally, Red aroused a little, and he fell to himself, and he fell to the side of the casket, and he looked up and all around. Then he, we heard him say, if I'm not dead, why am I here? And if I am dead, why do I have to go to the bathroom? I think later on Red came in the program, don't you? <laughs> but what you do is, and they gave me a job, but I, I finally made general manager of this motor company, a big distributor company. We had everything from Abilene to El Paso, 600 miles. And they gave me a, a I made me general manager finally. And uh, I had to do a lot of entertaining. And uh, you know how that is. You you don't want to uh, uh, disappoint your customers. And I entertained the hell out of them. I, I really did entertain them. And I always had plenty of booze and I always drank plenty so that I could uh, could transfer my wisdom and knowledge and alcohol helped me do that to them. And uh, so you follow a pattern of things you want to do, and it suited me exactly. That's what I wanted to do, because alcohol made me unafraid to dance and, and be the best dancer or to be the best salesman, the best sales manager, whatever it was. Alcohol was doing it, I thought. And in your development of alcoholism, you keep on drinking and drinking and drinking, and, and then you start drinking for a different reason. And you just start drinking to get away from the effects of drinking. And if you do that long enough and you follow that pattern, it gets worse and worse if you have that X factor in your life, and I had it. And because of that, I kept and finally I crossed the line into compulsive pathological drinking. That's the only drinking that's a disease. And I know it's a disease because it doesn't respond to self-treatment. And the reason I know, I tried self-treatment on it for 25 years and it didn't work. And when I finally turned it over to God and they, hey, that worked pretty darn good. But you know, these bad things that happen to us on the way to alcoholism and after we reach alcoholism, 
and bad things, your luck changes. You ever notice that? It's it, not because of drinking, you're just bad luck, you know. And so, and it, then you start uh, losing jobs, and I started working for a narrow-minded employer. <laughs> Very narrow-minded. And I remember uh, now the line from there, they finally decided that they could get along without me in the automotive industry, and so I uh, I went, they moved me to a credit manager, the Packard uh, automobile company, and sent me to Corpus Christi. And I went down there and uh, to show them how to drink, and I did a pretty good job. But, you know, after a while... Uh, you, if you if you can't handle your booze and and you're developing alcohol and you're into the throes of alcohol, then bad things start happening. You you you. I rode those four horsemen: terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. I rode those that horse all the way down the line, and I was desperate, but I didn't know what was wrong. I had no idea that alcohol was the problem, but. <clears throat> Then these bad things, all kinds of bad things happen to you. And then I I lost all these jobs, and then I started taking the geographical cure. That is unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. (laughs) And a lot of those things I I, I lost on account of my belief. I got to believe in other people's things were mine. And fear, fear set in. Fear of all kinds. No faith. And, uh, and I had had faith in God and had faith and because I heard my dad and my mother pray and for faith and, and they expressed to me what faith was. That faith is believing that if you need and God needs for you to have a rain, you'll get it. And if he doesn't, you won't. But fear, they told me, is a dark room where negatives are developed. Write that in your book. Fear is a dark room where negatives are developed. And if you keep having fear, then you'll have a negative attitude. It breeds more sorry things in your life than you can dream of. You fear, and the reason you fear is because you have no faith. And if you don't have faith, you don't have much future. So we have to develop faith. And I only did that when I came into alcoholic novel. I never really had faith. So anyhow, uh, I went in the service. I uh, first, I got out of jail in Corpus Christi and went to Dallas and I went to work for a defense plant. We built bomb doors for, for a plane, bombing planes. And, uh, you know, alcoholics are shrewd. We're smart as hell about observing people and what their capacities are and what they can do and how they can do it. And they had me observing those people working in there and what they did and was it paying off. And with all my knowledge and there, was, I observed that we were going to lose the damn war if we didn't get rid of those sorry people in there that would, were trying to build bomb doors. And so I, I volunteered and went in the service. And I was 33 years old, and I've been drunk 20 of those years. And I was not in very good physical condition. They ran my tail off day and night, my tongue out, and I just had a hard time getting through basic training. But I got through that, and anyhow, about 11 months later, uh, after I had made corporal and they, and they put me in charge of a platoon to go down to the frontier days in, uh, Cheyenne, Wyoming. And I sent my, I, my platoon down there and dismissed them and I went down to a hotel and stayed there three or four days. And the, ser- the service took a damn deal. And they dismissed me after about 11 months. They decided if they were going to win the war, they better get rid of me and that's what they did. And when I, when they got rid of me and I came back to Dallas, I was given a job with a, a, a large uh, automotive company out of Toledo, electric autolite company. And they gave me five states to travel out of Lubbock. And they moved me from Dallas to Lubbock. And uh, anyhow, the short uh, version of this story is 
that the company knew I had a drinking problem. They didn't know how bad. But on a day, I was a, I had a terrible hangover, and the fellow I was traveling with, uh, his car broke down, and I told him to get it fixed, and I'd go back to the hotel where we were staying. And uh, the reason I did that, see, we alcoholics were wise. I, there was a liquor store between there and the hotel. And I went by and picked up some refreshments. And uh, went down, and in front of the hotel, I ran into uh, uh, the guy that would help me come into Alcohart's novel. His name was Bob Skimmerhart. He and his mother owned the big oil company in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and we did a lot of drinking together. And uh, he was a sorry drinker, too. Uh, but he had a lot of money, and he would drink and pass out, and I'd steal his money and stay drunk. That's what kept me drunk for quite a while. <laughs> But I ran into Bob, and I said, Bob, let's go have a drink. I'm about to die. And he said, I'll go with you. And he went with me, and I poured him a drink, and he didn't take it. He pushed it back and said, you go on drink. You need a drink. And I had a couple, and then I I, I quit. I couldn't understand. I'm, he'd never turned a drink down that I knew of in his life. And then I asked him, I said, what kind of venereal disease you got, Bob? And... <clears throat> He said, I had the, some bad things started happening to me because of my drinking. He said, I'd get up at night and drive with a carload of liquor. And in front of the airport there in Dallas, I ran over an automobile and there were three ladies in there and they all were killed. You can imagine the anguish and the problems that my mother and I have had having killed somebody drunk. And he said, I had to find a way to stay sober and then Dallas... There are, we have about 12 or 13 of us, and we have a group called Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, I've been sober 10 months. And I couldn't believe that, that he'd ever be sober 10 months. But he told me this, he said, when you go as far as you can go, you can't go one step further. You call me and I'll try to help you. You need some help. You need to quit drinking. And I had no idea about Alcoholics Anonymous or anything. I had I re- read that article in the, in the Saturday Evening Post, and, but I didn't, I, I thought that was for you people. But, uh, Bob told me and made me know that there was a way out because he had found it. And he sent me the big book. And he said, I'm going to send you a book that tells about how to stay sober and how these people, just like us, have survived and are sober today. And I said, well, you be damn sure you send it to the hotel where I don't send it to my wife. She'll think I've got a drinking problem. <laughs> In November, I lost that job, a good job. And I stayed drunk from November 1945 to April 1946. And a moment of clarity came that I remembered what Bob told me. And I had gone as far as I could go. I couldn't go a step further. And I got on the plane, went to Dallas looking for Bob, and a couple of days he came back in the city. By that time I was drunk and, and in real bad physical condition everywhere. And he put me in an ambulance and took me out to a drying out joint. We didn't have treatment centers in, we had drying out places. They'd give you an ounce of alcohol every four hours to keep you from having DT. And, uh, <laughs> those hours, I'll tell you, were very short. I, I, I needed to drink badly. But somehow, someway, by the grace of God, uh, I did not have to have some more drink. I did not have to have drink as I had been doing. I had to have a drink. To, to live. And so the second day there, they talk, called him, Bob said, we're going to take you to Alcoholics Anonymous. And we got in the car and went downtown Dallas, 9, 12 and a half Main Street, parked in front of a liquor store. And then I knew damn well they had worked. <laughs> but we didn't go in a liquor store, we went up some stairs up there, and in, at, at the, over the doorway, there was a sign that said, Welcome, you're home. And that's the first time a welcome sign had been turned around where I could read it in a long time. <laughs> and we went in there, and here's the important thing. I want to tell each and every one of you here, you may think you're not important. I don't care who you are, where you came from, or how you came there. 
you are the only one that can help somebody that's out there looking for a way right now to stay sober. You're the only one. I've heard them say, say I, I don't know much about the story. I haven't been in very long. I don't know anybody I can help. You can help somebody. Tell them your story what happened. Every single one of us, and it's our responsibility to stay sober in order to help somebody else stay sober and save their lives as our lives have been saved. And it's it that uh, we're responsible. I'm responsible to stay sober. How? Because they gave me a way not to drink. And I couldn't imagine ever living life without alcohol. What the hell would you do if you didn't drink? I couldn't imagine. Anything, anything you could do. But anyhow, the importance, and there, the 12 guys that were there at the AA group, the important, and this is the important thing of that first contact that somebody gives you away and the importance of sponsorship. This guy, Burl McInerney, was probably the only one of the 12 that would take the time and, and, and would, uh, would uh, tell me exactly what to do. And he said, do you believe in God? And I said, yes, I believe in God. Uh, he said, do you admit you're powerless over alcohol? Your life's unmanageable? I have no problem with that. Well, he said, I don't want any of your, your uh, propositions and your promises. I want a commitment. Before you get out of bed every morning, to God, not to me or anybody else, but to God, that you'll not take a drink just for 24 hours. And he said, if you don't drink today, you never will drink. Never. And I didn't know I was in a crap until the next day came, and that was the day, so I couldn't drink. <laughs> and every day since then has been like that. I make that commitment in the morning, so I can't drink today. I'm not going to drink today. I don't care what happens. But I made a commitment to God this morning not to drink. Anyhow, we started, uh, I went back, there was not a group of Alcoholics Anonymous between Fort Worth and Phoenix, Arizona, 1,200 miles. Not a group. And we had 12 members. So it was pretty lonely. Can you imagine how lonely it was for Dr. Bob and Bill? Was the two of them trying to figure out and did figure out a way to stay sober? Then they wanted to figure out how to way to help us stay sober. But can you imagine how lonely it was with those two people meeting? Start your little group today with two people and see how, how long it takes you. To, to get a bunch of people. Anyhow, the first hundred finally got together. We had a hundred members. How do we know Alcoholics Anonymous work? It worked from the beginning. And look at these things that happened by the grace of God. Uh, finally, we got a hundred people, members in Alcoholics Anonymous. Twenty-five of them were agnostic. They didn't believe in God. So Bill Wilson told me that they met and met. Yes, they all agnostic and all. We're powerless over alcohol. Our lives are unmanageable. No problem with that. But what do we do? They met and met and met and met. And they said, well, we've been trying to do it ourselves and this and that and the other. But what, what, what's missing? And you know what happened? The agnostics and all of them finally said, yes, there is some kind of power greater than we are. And if that power can restore to sanity, so, so be it. And they went on that road and it's been working ever since. I don't care whether you're agnostic or what it is, you have to believe that there's some kind of power greater than we are that can restore to sanity. And it, it works. It worked from the beginning. And look at the spiritual significance, the spiritual threads of spirituality woven in all the fabric of AA. All of them. Uh, Bill Wilson, drunk for the 40th time and in town hospital for the 40th time. And, uh, old Andy came in, an old schoolmate. And he's in the Oxford group. And the Oxford group had four absolutes. Absolute honesty, absolute faith, absolute everything, over. And I asked Bill Wilson one time, what, what, why didn't you stay with those four hours? He said, an alcoholic can't absolutely do anything. <laughs> but he said, we can be shown how to accomplish something, and we can do that if we're shown how, but not absolutely. So, uh, they, what they did, 
Bill asked Abby, he said, what's this religion you've got? He said, well, it's not religion, really. Well, he said, what's the bottom line? What do you do to stay sober? You're sober. And he said, we curse God, clean house, and help us. And of all the literature we have and all the books and everything and all the knowledge we have today, still the bottom line is trust God, clean house, and help others. It's still the fact. <laughs> Look at the spirituality. Bill got on his knees that night and said, if there is a God, show himself to me. And if you read the big book where the soft wind blew over him, and he never took another drink. And that's the grace of God. All of you who feel like you've been surrounded by the grace of God and his goodness, and you've surrendered to that, well, stand up with your hands up. We've been surrounded by God's goodness and God's help. And without that help and without that power greater than we are, we wouldn't have AA today. So, anyhow, six months after that time, Abby resumes drinking and goes down the Bowery in New York. And he stayed drunk, 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 drunk. But Bill never took another drink. So... When we started groups around in West Texas and all over that country, there were no groups. And we'd start little groups here and there and drive hundreds of miles to help somebody start a group to save ourselves. And, and we finally got some groups and we started calling them clubs, you know, AA clubs. And a lot of things, uh, they caused a lot of problems, you know, like uh, Mary ran off with the club money. <laughs> And Bill did so and so wrong, and he ran off to and what happened all of that. But we were keeping no Bill awake all night with all the problems we had that we had created on our own. And so Bill came to uh, Texas, and I, in 1946, uh, we had the first state conference in Austin, Texas, in 46, and Bill Lawrence came down the first time I'd met him. And we formed a relationship that lasted from 1946 to 71 when he died. We were very close, and we associated with each other. We helped each other. And I had, uh, I'm not bragging because I, I, I'm just, by the grace of God, was under his wing until I could experience the 12 steps of Alcoholics Not. So Bill told me these problems we had as we went along. And so in 1948, Bill Wilson came to Amarillo, Texas, and I met him. We got on a plane to go to Lubbock, and he reached in his pocket and pulled out some handwritten notes. And he said, I want you to read these and see what you think about them and hand them back to me. And I'd been sober two years, and I was pretty wise, I'll tell you that. <laughs> but I read them over, and I said, Bill, this is all right for you Yankees, but we don't need it down here. <laughs> well, we love each other. God, how we love it. <laughs> Nothing will ever happen to us. We'll always be loving each other. What it was was the 12 traditions he'd written out. Aren't you glad I didn't start this thing? <laughs> Here's what happened. In 48, that then I didn't think we needed it, and I didn't see any reason for it. Two years later, by the grace of God, I'm still sober by my association and help from Bill Wilson and, and others, of course. Uh, the, these things started to, to happen, and unbelievable, and by the grace of God, they started to happen. So we, we formed groups, and Bill would come down and help us uh, start groups and help us this and that. And we had a lot of help from a lot of people, especially Bill. He liked to come to Texas for some reason. I don't know why. Anyhow, we spent a lot of time there. And by 1950, I had become aware that we needed the 12th tradition. And, and I had become aware that we damn sure needed them badly. 
And uh, so in uh, Cleveland in 1950 at the International Conference, the first one, I was there. And uh, Bill and Bob had me up in the room scooting me on how to get vote. We were at 2.45 that afternoon. We were going to vote whether to adopt or accept the 12th tradition. And they were, we wanted to be sure it would pass. And so Bob and Bill schooled me on how to get votes, and I was down in the audience. We had a big crowd there, about as many people as you have here at the First International. I hear people say, I'm thrilled. I'm excited. This, I've never seen anything. People here the first time. We were just as excited with five or 6,000 in Cleveland as you are right here with 100,000. Just as excited because if something tells us this thing works, it, this is unity. This is what it's about. And, and we're thrilled and, and excited about it. So, uh, Bill helped us start groups all over that country. And, uh, they were started right, and they stayed on the right course as long as we, we stayed with the 12th tradition. But some of the, I'll tell you some of the early, we had, we made some mistakes. Yes, we did. <laughs> Believe it or not. In spite of the, in spite of the uh, twelve tradition, it always makes a mistake. But let me we talk about the twelve steps of recovery. I'm going to tell you twelve steps of how not to recover. You never hear that, do we? We hear how you recover. Now, here's how not to recover. If you'll follow these twelve steps, this is what we did. We admitted we were powerless over nothing, that we could manage our lives perfectly and those of anyone who would allow us to. <laughs> we came to believe there was no power greater than ourselves and the rest of the world was insane. <laughs> we made a decision to have our loved ones and friends turn their will and lives over to our care, even though they couldn't understand us at all. We made a searching and fearless, moral and immoral inventory of everybody we knew. <laughs> we admitted the whole world at large, the exact nature of everybody else's wrong. <laughs> we were entirely ready to make them straighten up and do right. We demanded others to either shape up or ship out. We made a list of all persons who had harmed us and became willing to get even with all of them. We got direct revenge to such people where it was possible, except when to do so would cost our lives or at least a jail sentence. <laughs> we continued to take the inventory of others, and when they were wrong, promptly and repeatedly told them about it. We sought through bitching and nagging to improve our relations with others, as we couldn't understand them at all, asking only if they knuckle down and do things our way. <laughs> Having had a complete physical, mental, emotional, and, and spiritual breakdown as a result of these steps, we tried to blame it on others and get sympathy and pity in all our affairs. I'll guarantee you that's the way not to do it, isn't it? But we had some early promises, too. The promises didn't just happen recently. We had those early promises, too, along with these steps. And they are these are the 12 early promises. Number one is you don't know your full name and address. <laughs> Number two, you'll be able to shave yourself. Number three, you'll be able to dress and undress yourself at the appropriate time and place. You at all times know that you all times know the city, state, and country you're in. You'll routinely be able to find matching socks. You'll be able to smoke if you wish without burning holes in your clothes or the furniture. You'll lose the fear of food. You'll spend less time in the bathroom. You'll be able to walk a straight line and pass the balloon test. You will, you'll lose the fear of police cars in your rearview mirror. You'll be able to answer the doorbell without looking through the keyhole first. You'll realize what a mess you've been and, and thank God for AA and Alala.
the real, the real twelve rewards. We have twelve, 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 everything. And the real twelve rewards are this. Faith instead of despair. Courage instead of fear. Hope instead of desperation. Peace of mind instead of confusion. Real friendships instead of loneliness. Self-respect instead of self-contempt. Self-confidence instead of self-helplessness. A clean conscience instead of a sense of guilt. The respect of others instead of their pity and contempt. A clean pattern of living instead of a purposeless existence. The love and understanding of our families instead of their doubt and fear. The freedom of a happy life instead of the bondage of an alcoholic obsession. And those are the real, real rewards of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Let's look back and see how some of these things happen. Those threads of spirituality and how they happen. Six months after Abby uh, told Bill how to stay sober, and Bill and he, Abby, Abby was always Bill's sponsor, and uh, Abby went and got drunk. He stayed drunk on the Bowery for nine years. And in 1953, uh, well, I'll put, take it back, in 1948, uh, I, Bill Wilson, I wanted to know all the details about everything about Alcoholics Anonymous and about AA and, and alcoholism and all. And I'd ride around with Bill Wilson and ask him some damn many questions. Finally, he said one day, he said, why don't you go to the Yale School and study alcoholism? And maybe you'll brighten up and know what's going on. And I said, how do I go? And he said, I'll send you. Gladly. <laughs> so I went up there and we studied alcoholism from one end to the other. We were really up on alcoholism. And they had knowledge about a little bit of everything. And we had uh, some and dear friends that really helped us over the years and helped alcoholics, especially the beginning years. And one of those was Dr. Jelinek, who was a scientist. And he came from South America. He was a banana scientist in South America. And he came to head the Yale School in New Haven. And uh, so I asked him, so, uh, Dr. Delanek one time, I said, how in the hell did you, a scientist, go from bananas to alcoholics? He said, they're just alike. They get away from the bunch, they get peeled. We studied how to make uh, alcoholics out of cats and mice and all uh, everything. We had a lot of knowledge, I'll tell you. <laughs> One thing that, that the, impre- the only thing that really impressed me was we had a cage with a lot of mice in it, and they had a we had some kind of a whistle, a loud whistle, and j- put in that cage. And we'd give those mice uh, water to begin with, and they would start adding alcohol to it. And we increased those doses as we went along, but the, in the beginning, when they were drinking that little booze in there, you could blow that whistle and they'd just run crazy, tear that cage down, and uh, and make all kinds of noises even. And you keep adding that alcohol to it, increasing the dose to go along. Finally, they got to, you could blast that air in there, and they didn't give a damn, you just keep drinking. <laughs> Reminded me of myself. <laughs> Anyhow... In 1950, Dr. Gelnick became ill, and uh, he said, Turkey, the greatest need we have in this country is a medical hospital where an alcoholic can go and sober up, and then where AAs can come in and help them and take them to the group and help them do the experience the steps. And so we established four hospitals, one in Dallas, Houston, uh, uh, Lubbock, Carbad, New Mexico. And they, 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 we did just that. There were, there were AAs in there day and night, and 75% of those people stayed sober. Not because of the hospital, hospital, because somebody helped them, uh, with the 12 steps and experiencing those steps. And not knowing them, not reading them, not memorizing them, but experience those 12 steps of alcoholic knowledge. Anyhow, in 1953, uh, 
Bill Wilson came to, to see the hospital we had in Dallas. And he visited all the 15 patients in there. And he was impressed at the, how successful it was in helping drunk. And we went to have lunch, and I said, Bill, a lot of things have happened in AA since, uh, since the beginning. What would you rather see happen now that's never happened before? He said, I'd rather see Abby have a chance to get sober. This is what we mean, pass it on. There's nobody hopeless and helpless in alcoholics. There's somebody, some way, somehow that can help you and establish the, 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 the absolute Sureness that you can't say so if and provided you'll experience 12 steps. Well, anyhow, we got a hold of, <coughs> we got in touch with Abby finally on, on the, he's down on the Bowery in New York and been drunk there nine years. And we finally got with the, some whiskey and stuff like that, a round trip ticket, the promise, to come to Dallas and uh, sober up. And uh, he was mad as hell, resentful. Hated everybody, Dr. Bob, Bill, hated me, cussed me out every morning, and uh, I listened to that. <laughs> he was a cantankerous old wrestler, and uh, and his room was right across from my office in the hospital. And he'd come over and cuss me out in the morning, and he'd take Bill in the afternoon, Dr. Bob at night. You know, he'd take time out. <laughs> so... But anyhow, after about six weeks, I told the nurse in there to get him ready, and I called Bill Wilson, and I said... We're not, I don't believe we're helping Abby. He's not getting sober. He's, he's sober, but he's, he's still got a bad attitude. And, uh, and so Bill said, stay the course if you can. If you can still put up with it, go on and do it. And we stayed the course. And I asked a nurse in there who was a member of AA or an RN one day. She came in and said, I believe I see some improvement in Abby. And I said, well, you, I don't, I don't see any at all. And I, in fact, the matter, he's going to ship out pretty soon. I left, was out of town for about a week, and came back, and this nurse came in and said, I see a little different attitude in Abby. And those that went on fine, a week later, he came in, and he said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to the A group. Well, he said, uh, can I go with you? And he went over there and, and visited a while. The next day, he went and stayed all day. And, uh, and every day, the weeks there after he went over there and stayed. And then that, uh, about six months from then, he went on a ranch out in West Texas where he didn't know a damn cow from a, from a horn. And, and stayed out there and stayed sober, stayed sober three and a half years. And then he, he, uh, helped, there was an R, an, an RN, a nurse that worked in the hospital who became addicted to, uh, drugs. And she was bedridden, and Abby stayed with her for two and a half years, didn't take a drink, waited on her night and day, and when when she died, he got drunk. But he stayed sober most of the time, and let your people know who are in doubt, he was sober two and a half years when he died up in Upper State, New York. That's, that's what Bill meant when he said, pass it on. Don't give up. And a lot of things, I, I, I see a lot of people work with a lot of people, and you find it come and you say, uh, they don't, they don't want to get sober. How the hell do I know? I just say, I'm just saying it. But you look down the line, you see them later on, I've seen some of them here in this congregation that I didn't think would make it, and here they are sober. And I'm damn glad of it, and that's the way it works. There's nobody helpless and hopeless in this fellowship. It, it, it just worked. I want to give credit for those old-timers that before me and on back there that paved the way and made it possible for you and I to be here today sober. And one of them is Sybil Corbin, her mother. <laughs> she was a great lady, and, and, and she has... Uh, uh, I could spread the gospel in the right way for many, many years. She has helped a lot of people for a long, long time. And the only thing that I regret about her is that she's got more sobriety than I do. <laughs> well, as I told you, I finished high school in Stanford, Texas, in uh, 1927. And uh, I went to school with a guy named Stuart Hamblin. 
Now, some of you, especially the older ones, and maybe some of you remember some of his songs, like This Old House, and uh, and a lot of other. He went to Hollywood and he wrote all of the, the uh, spiritual songs and the religious movies for years. And he became an alcoholic. And he called me, wanted me to, to be a sponsor. And I said, yes. And I said, only if you'll promise me one thing. You wrote a song one time that I believe you wrote it for Alcoholics Anonymous. And he knew that I'd been sober for a while. And don't leave, I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> but it goes like this, and it does apply to what I think the Alcoholics Anonymous. The chimes of time ring out the news, another day is through. Someone slipped and fell, was that someone you? You may have longed for added strength, your courage to renew. Do not be disheartened, because I've got news for you. It is no secret what God can do. What he's done for others, he'll do for you. With arms wide open, he'll pardon you. It is no secret what God can do. There is no night, for in his light you'll never walk alone. You'll always feel at home wherever you may roam. There is no power can conquer you while God is on your side. Just take him at his promise. Don't run away and hide. It is no secret what God can do. So we're gathered here with a certain amount of time to talk. This is the third time I've talked here. And all I know is what happened. And all I know is that it worked. And all I know is that it works good, and I see it by the 100,000 people here. And I, I, I leave you with when I challenge each and every one of you, regardless of where you are, where you came from, what you do, or anything, I challenge you to this, that we abandon ourselves to God as we understand God. Clear away the wreckage of the past. Admit our faults to our fellows. And I have no doubt in my mind that all of us, some way, somehow, somewhere, will meet again. And until then, God bless all of you.